Hello and welcome to the Allen and Overy podcast. In this episode, we will discuss UK listed PLC annual reports and AGMs, with a particular focus on what's new for the upcoming reporting and AGM season. I'll start by introducing our team for today. I'm Victoria Rankmore and I'm here with my job share, Kate Astley. Kate and I are both Council and ANO's corporate team, and we specialise in advising companies on their annual reports, AGMs, and ongoing governance arrangements. Kate and I are joined by our colleagues Matt Townsend, Isabella Kelly, and Katie James, with whom we work closely throughout the reporting and AGM season. Matt is a partner, and Bella is a senior associate in ANO's Environmental, Climate, and Regulatory Law Group. Katie is an associate in ANO's UK Corporate Incentives Team. So, thinking back to last year when companies were planning for their 2021 reporting in AGM season, many were concerned with how to manage the reporting process remotely for the first time after an unprecedented year, and also the format that a company's AGM should take given COVID restrictions. This year, I think, will be different and more interesting in many ways. COVID impact will remain a theme, of course, in annual reports, and companies will undoubtedly be drawing on those experiences of the last couple of years when deciding how best to run their AGMs. But at the same time, we expect to see more of a focus on some broader and longer term issues, including climate and diversity, which are increasingly subject to both regulation and investor scrutiny. So, Kate, if I could turn to you first, before we delve into the detail of what's new for annual reports and AGMs this year, could you give us some headline points, please? Perhaps to begin with on the annual report? Thank you, Victoria. So firstly, there is a new hard content requirement for annual reports this year, enlisting rule 9.8.68 relating to climate-related financial disclosures. We can perhaps ask Bella to talk through the detail of this in a moment. There's also a proposed new listing rule requirement on which the FCA is currently consulting and which, if implemented, would require companies to disclose in their annual report whether they meet specific board diversity targets relating to gender and ethnicity on a comply or explain basis. Any new rules wouldn't technically apply until next year, but if the FCA's plans become clear between now and the spring, we may see companies go early, particularly given the overlap with disclosure already recommended by institutional shareholder groups. There may also be an amendment to the part of DTR 7 that requires disclosure around board diversity policies, broadening its scope to cover key board committees. We can talk about this more shortly. And finally, while there are no new technical requirements for the direct remuneration report this year, we are increasingly seeing companies introducing ESG-related metrics into long-term incentive performance conditions linked to remuneration outcomes. We can ask Katie for her perspective on this and also for her views on the broader current best practice in remuneration issues, including in the context of the continuing impact of COVID. Thank you, Kate. And what about the annual report format? Are there any changes there? Yes, there are. Specifically, There is a new requirement in DTR 4.1.14 for main market listed companies to produce their annual reports in a structured electronic format from this year onwards. The requirement, which is part of the UK's implementation of a cross-EU initiative known as ESEF, or European Single Electronic Format, was due to come into force last year but was pushed back due to COVID. The FRC is planning to publish a best practice report this autumn based on early ESEF filings and discussions with companies and service providers. This will hopefully help guide the very large number of companies who will be required to publish their annual report in the structured electronic format for the first time in spring 2022. Although actually, a survey by the Financial Reporting Lab indicates that some companies have already made detailed preparations. 
for those companies who haven't yet prepared, it's not too late, but it is essential that they, and in particular their teams who work on producing the electronic version of the annual report, are familiar with the new ESEF requirement and the FCA's technical guidelines from January 2021. Great. So those are the headlines for the annual report. What about for AGMs? Well, firstly, I am both hoping and anticipating that the practical side of AGM planning will be less stressful for company secretarial teams in 2022 than it has been for the last couple of years. Let's truly hope that public health issues don't continue to impact AGMs. But even if they do, it feels as though the market is now quite accustomed to seeing different ways of engaging with the AGM and the need to be flexible in some circumstances. That's not to say that AGMs will go back to how they were pre-pandemic, although some might. We expect to see a range of approaches in the market. As everyone knows, there was a huge increase in formal and informal hybrid meeting arrangements last year, and this trend may continue. Although I'd note that while some companies experienced high levels of shareholder engagement through their electronic platforms, others did not. We therefore expect all companies to be reflecting on their experiences from last year, balancing costs with best practice considerations. And in trying to strike the right balance, we'd expect them to take account of any feedback from shareholders on how they prefer to engage with the company in relation to the AGM, as well as any new flexibility in their articles of association if they made updates in 2021. The broader public health outlook as we move into winter will also be relevant, with companies potentially needing to factor in the possibility of further COVID or other measures impacting travel and work and therefore AGMs. But moving on from the meeting format to the substantive business of the AGM, a very notable feature of the 2021 AGM season was the inclusion of climate-related resolutions in the AGM business of an increasing number of companies, some requisitioned by activist shareholders and others put forward voluntarily by companies. So far, most of these resolutions have been in the FTSE 100 and in the financial services and natural resources industries, but that could change over time. I suggest we ask Matt to give his perspective on what we've seen in the market so far and the development we might anticipate in this space. Thank you, Kate. And as suggested, turning now to you, Bella and Matt, it does seem as though climate-related issues are rising up both the annual reporting and AGM agenda at pace. But starting perhaps with the annual report, could you give us an overview of the new listing rule requirement, please? And also any practical tips that you have for the team's drafting annual reports this year? Sure. Thanks, Victoria. So you are quite right that we have seen climate issues at the forefront of the reporting gender over the last few years. And the listing rule is a very good example of that. So it requires companies with a premium UK listing to report on whether they've made TCFD aligned disclosures or if they haven't, explaining why they haven't. Now, the listing rule applies to financial years beginning on or after 1 January 2021. So we won't actually see the first disclosures until early next year. But I wanted to mention just a few things in terms of what issuers should be thinking about when preparing their first disclosures. Now, the first thing to note is that the new listing rule applies on a comply or explain basis, but that there is really only one reason why the FCA considers it would be justifiable to explain rather than comply. And that is where the company is not able to make disclosures because it faces transitional, so that is temporary, challenges in obtaining data or embedding modeling or analytical capabilities where a company doesn't make full TCFD aligned disclosures, then it has to describe any steps it will take to ensure that it can in the future. And it also has to say when it expects it will be able to make the disclosures. So really, the listing rules comply or explain basis is narrower and potentially more time limited than other comply or explain requirements we might normally see. 
The second thing to note is that the process for determining whether a company's disclosures are TCFD aligned is going to require a detailed assessment of the disclosures against not only the 11 recommended disclosures in the TCFD framework, but also TCFD guidance. Now that's the guidance for all sectors and then for the financial sector or non-financial groups as relevant. The FCA's guidance also states that companies should further consider other TCFD materials on top of these. So you've got the technical supplements as well as other guidance on risk management integration and scenario analysis. Really, the upshot of all of this is that this process will not simply be a matter of ticking boxes. It's going to require companies to really understand how the various TCFD materials work together, how they speak to each other, and what they require, and then to carry out an in-depth assessment of how its own disclosures measure up. As a third observation, the location of the TCFD disclosures has not been mandated by the listing rule, although it certainly encourages that they be included in the annual report. There are some practical and legal considerations here for companies. So for example, including the TCFD disclosures in the annual report means that they can slot within a company's existing and very well-established corporate reporting frameworks and systems, and are also given the same level of rigor and governance and potentially protections as some other annual reporting disclosures. In any event, I think that regardless of where the disclosures are located, it's going to be really important for companies and their directors to manage their liability risks in preparing TCFD disclosures, particularly in the case of forward-looking statements. And climate scenario analysis is an obvious example of that. These sorts of statements would need to be supported by you know, a robust, good-faith risk assessment based on the latest and best evidence reasonably available, be consistent with internal documentation, be complete and be neutral, so avoid cherry-picking favourable information, and also be relevant. And as a final observation, and perhaps most importantly, it would, I think, be overly simplistic to see the TCFD as only a reporting framework. Yes, the TCFD recommendations relate to disclosure and transparency, and these things are really important. But ultimately, what the TCFD framework will do is drive organisational change to better deal with climate risks and opportunities. So in other words, the TCFD framework is really about what you're disclosing against, not simply the disclosures themselves. Thank you, Bella. So Kate also mentioned climate-related resolutions at AGMs. Matt, could you tell us what you've seen in the market so far and how do you view the direction of travel for 2022 and beyond? Thanks, Victoria. Um, so I think it's fair to say that the 2021 AGM season was pretty eventful on the climate front. This year, we saw an overall increase in the number of climate-related resolutions. In fact, the highest number when you look back over the last five years or so, there were about 30% of them being shareholder resolutions. And there was an even split in terms of targeting oil majors and financial institutions. For the oil majors, the resolution sought to direct the companies to set, publish and disclose against targets that are aligned with the Paris Climate Agreement goals. For banks, the resolutions were around setting, disclosing and reporting against targets to reduce exposure to and phase out providing financial services to fossil fuel projects. Importantly, none of the resolutions were recommended by the board. One was withdrawn and the rest failed to pass at the AGM. But shareholder resolutions do continue to raise the profile of climate issues and can drive strategic change within companies, including perhaps encouraging boards to take climate action and propose its own climate resolution so it can frame the discussion and drive the strategy itself. Where we have seen a trend this year is shareholders, when they discuss the resolution with the board, the resolution is withdrawn. And ultimately, 
the board steps forward to propose its own climate resolution for the company, setting out a strategy to align its provisions, as I've said, to the Paris Agreement goals. As another example, this year's shareholder resolutions at the oil majors, whilst not passing, both received over 20% of the votes in support. This means that under the Corporate Governance Code, the companies will need to explain what they're doing to consult with shareholders to understand the reasons for these results and then report on any further actions or resolutions proposed. On the board resolutions point, these are usually around approving a company's climate transition plans, strategies or commitments or climate disclosures. One really interesting board proposed resolution was to approve a remuneration policy which included new ESG measures, including climate metrics. This is definitely one to keep an eye on in terms of direction of travel. One final observation is around lessons that can be learned from developments in the US. For example, the high-profile and successful resolution, which saw some directors replaced with the aim of better driving Exxon's climate transition, or BlackRock's votes against the re-election of directors at Volvo because its climate reporting and strategy did not meet investor expectations. There is certainly pressure on directors to be climate competent and to discharge their duties in the wake of the shift we've seen towards understanding climate risk as a foreseeable financial risk. This is also in line with the developments we're seeing in Europe on sustainable corporate governance, which could potentially include requirements for companies to have a certain proportion of board members with deep environmental expertise. Thank you, Matt. And finally, could you give us an idea of what you see coming down the line for environmental and climate-related reporting? Yeah, we're certainly living in a time when climate issues are featuring very heavily on board agendas and are also the subject of a lot of the sustainability-related regulatory and policy developments. There's a huge amount happening in this space. You also, as part of that, need to just look at the sheer volume of the European Union's so-called Fit for 55 climate package, just to get a sense of the change that is unfolding to enable countries to meet their climate goals. The UK has set its climate targets in law and released various climate-related strategies cutting across a number of sectors in the economy. These set out how its targets will be achieved. Ultimately, achieving Paris Agreement targets will require a significant reallocation of private capital towards public environmental and sustainability goals. And we're only really at the beginning of that journey. In order to achieve this, investors need to know where to put their money and have greater transparency on their investment assets. But the current quantity and quality of climate-related disclosures at the moment does not meet that demand. It's really in this context that the UK government last year released its roadmap to move towards mandatory climate disclosures across the economy by 2025. The FCA listing rule discussed earlier is included in the roadmap, together with a whole raft of other proposals to mandate TCFD reporting for different types of companies. This year, we've seen a plethora of consultations on TCFD reporting. And most notably, the FCA recently consulted on expanding the requirements of the listing rules we discussed earlier to bring standard listed companies within scope. It also developed proposals for asset managers, life insurers, and FCA regulated pension providers 
to make TCFD disclosures at the entity and product level. In parallel, the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy consulted on making TCFD reporting mandatory for public quoted companies, large private companies and LLPs. The FCA is aware of the potential overlap here with the listing rules and said it will work with Bayes and the FRC to ensure that the reporting requirements and associated supervision and enforcement operate coherently. Clearly, the climate reporting landscape is rapidly evolving and the direction of travel is obvious. TCFD reporting will be mandated in some shape or form across the UK economy and, in time, further tightened and hardened. For example, the current comply or explain basis for the existing and proposed listings rules on TCFD reporting may fall away as companies get up the curve on what they need to do and what capabilities need to be embedded in order to fully disclose. One final thought from me, it's also worth mentioning that what happens in the UK in terms of climate reporting will also be impacted by the coordination efforts happening at an international level, and in particular the work of the International Financial Reporting Standards Foundation. After COP26 in November, we might expect somewhat accelerated progress in its development of a climate-related reporting standard. This is very much something to keep an eye on as it develops. Thank you, Matt. And now if I could turn back to you, Kate. You mentioned earlier a consultation on changes to the listing rules and to the DTRs in relation to diversity reporting. Could you give us some more information on this? Yes, of course. Thanks, Victoria. So to expand, the FCA published a consultation in July on its proposals to amend both the listing rules and the DTRs in relation to diversity on boards and committees. Now, thinking firstly of the listing rules, it's proposed that companies should include a statement in their annual reports on whether they've met certain targets for both gender and ethnic diversity. And where companies haven't met the targets, they'll need to explain why. Uh, The consultation is ongoing, as I said, but on the basis of current proposals, At least 40% of the board will need to be women in order to meet the target. At least one board member will need to be from a non-white ethnic minority background. And at least one senior board member will need to be a woman. So that's the chair, CEO, SID or CFO. The standout development here, I think, is the proposed introduction of a target for female representation in specific board roles. If implemented, this will call companies to account for the actions they're taking over time to improve diversity both in the executive pipeline and in the senior non-executive community noting the growing number of very experienced female non-executives in the market following the successful work of the Hampton Alexander Review over a number of years now. Now, staying for a moment longer with the listing rules, it's also proposed that companies publish data on the gender and ethnic diversity of their boards, senior board positions and senior executive management. There's likely to be some overlap here with the existing requirements to disclose gender information and some companies already disclose this type of ethnicity data on a voluntary basis, although, again, the proposed separation out of data on senior board positions stands out as being something new for most companies. The consultation is also seeking views on whether in future data should be required as well on sexual orientation, which so far we've seen only rarely in annual reports and in these examples at whole group level. Thinking now of the DTRs, it's proposed that a company's disclosure on its board diversity policy under DTR 7.2.8a should also include the policy applied to its remuneration, audit and nominations committees. This may require some companies to revisit their diversity policies to ensure committees are appropriately covered. It's also proposed that diversity aspects specifically mentioned in the DTR, which are already non-exhaustive, should be expanded to include ethnicity, sexual orientation, disability and socio-economic background. 
In terms of timing, we're expecting to see the results of the consultation in late 2021, and if implemented, the rule changes are expected to apply to reporting on accounting periods starting on or after 1st of January 2022. So, while there won't be any new rules for companies to comply with for their 2021 annual report, we do expect to see an increased focus, both by companies and investors, on diversity reporting in the coming year. This will be partly driven by some companies perhaps wanting to move towards early compliance with any new rules, but also by the the general direction of travel of investor expectation. For example, the Investment Association have already in 2021 been red-topping companies with less than 30% female representation on the board, and they've also started to amber-top companies which do not disclose the ethnic diversity of their board or a credible action plan to achieve the Parker Review targets. And of course, it's worth noting that the related subject of ethnicity pay gap reporting is still under consideration, with the government recently confirming that it will respond to its 2018 consultation in due course. Thank you, Kate. And finally, turning now to you, Katie, for a focus on the Director's Remuneration Report. Historically, I think many of us have viewed the REM report as a discrete part of the annual report. But I note that Kate mentioned there does seem to be this growing trend for companies to introduce ESG metrics into long-term performance conditions linked to remuneration outcomes, which would tie in quite closely with other key reporting themes that Matt, Bella and Kate have discussed. What have you seen on this in the market so far and how do you see things developing? Thanks, Victoria. Yes, you're right. We have seen a growing number of companies incorporating ESG metrics into the remuneration packages of their executives recently. So 45% of FTSE 100 companies used some form of ESG measure in their executives pay for 2020. And that was a rise of about 10% compared with 2019. And this trend is likely to continue, given the explosion of interest from investors and the stream of climate-related regulatory changes that Matt and Bella have spoken about. You know, I think most boards now accept that to remain competitive and respected, they need to tie their ESG agendas to their remuneration policies. I think that said, depending on the sector within which the company operates, this is often easier said than done. So ESG is a pretty broad term and can cover a whole host of non-financial targets and metrics. And so, you know, measurements need to be easily accessible and transparent in order to be meaningful and to create value for shareholders and stakeholders. I think sometimes a company might have, you know, one critical ESG issue, such as a net zero carbon commitment, which they'll want to focus on. But often a multidisciplinary approach is more suitable. And in this case, companies may put together a kind of ESG scorecard where a cocktail of issues such as the company's supply chain, employee welfare, pollution, for example, are all detailed and then assessed against benchmarks and some targets. And there's a balance to be struck here between composing a comprehensive enough score sheet which prioritises relevant issues and one which is still simple enough to monitor ESG in a helpful way. Companies also need to think about the short-term versus long-term ESG priority list. So interestingly, in the latest reporting season, just over a third of FTSE 100 companies used ESG targets as part of their annual bonus plans with an average weighting of 15%, whereas about a fifth of companies use them as part of their long-term incentive plans. And social goals were the most common ESG factor used in the bonus plans, while environmental goals were the most popular in LTIPs. And I think that makes sense because... Environmental issues are usually more long term in nature, and so it's harder to move the dial over a shorter time scale. 
Whereas something like gender pay targets, for example, can be fairly robustly calibrated annually. I think remuneration committees will likely find it challenging setting appropriate long term environmental targets, which are neither overly ambitious nor too easily achievable. Companies should also be careful not to use metrics which award bonuses for behaviour which would otherwise be expected of them. For example, and without meaning to generalise, using health and safety metrics for bonus plans in the mining sector may just encourage payouts where minimal standards are being met and actually failing to meet those standards should be a cause for a bonus reduction rather than a reason for extra reward. Now, there's no indication yet that ESG metrics will become mandated, but if the EU head that way, then it's likely the UK will follow. And momentum is definitely growing for the need to measure an executive's contribution to their company's ESG agenda, especially now that investors will have greater access to environmental-related information to hold companies to account. Companies will need to avoid vague greenwash-like messaging, but also regularly assess how stretching the ESG metrics are. I think this will be a difficult nut to crack and investors may need to be patient with boards while they seek to get this balance right. Thank you, Katie. And so appreciating that ESG is only one area of focus in REM reports, what other current best practice observations would you make? And what do you see as the most likely flashpoints in relation to REM policy and REM report resolutions in the coming AGM season? Well, Victoria, similarly to last year, there were no new regulatory reporting requirements that companies needed to grapple with in relation to their director's remuneration reports or policies this year. But that said, more than twice as many FTSE 100 companies have faced shareholder rebellions over executive pay this year compared with last year. And shareholder dissatisfaction with the quantum and the structure of executive pay has been increasing steadily. And I think, you know, COVID has definitely exacerbated this. Investors were pretty clear from the start that executives should not be protected from the impact that COVID has had on wider stakeholders. And yet these rebellions took place despite an overall drop in executive pay. So the median FTSE 100 CEO pay package fell from 3.3 million in 2019 to 2.85 million in 2020. And just under a third of executives received no annual bonus for 2020, which was a huge rise up from 6% in 2019. Looking forward, salary freezes were implemented for over half of FTSE 100 chief execs for 2021. So why then did a third of shareholders vote against executive pay resolutions in at least 15 of the FTSE 350 last year? Well, some companies continued to pay their execs high bonuses, despite using millions of pounds of taxpayer-funded government support during the pandemic. And this was explicitly set out as being unacceptable in institutional investors' remuneration guidelines published in light of the pandemic. Another company introduced a new bonus scheme with no targets and a lack of investor engagement, while another company completely stripped out COVID-related costs from the profit element of the performance bonus conditions, which meant that essentially the executive's bonus payment went from below the threshold for payout to the maximum payout possible. In another instance, Glass-Lewis simply said that they were seriously concerned at the executive's headline remuneration figure, which amounted to about $1 million a week over the course of the year. I should flag that many of the investor revolts took place in relation to remuneration report AGM resolutions, which, as we all know, are only advisory. However, the FRC's Code of Corporate Governance suggests that a board should consult with its major shareholders if there's a vote of more than 20% against an AGM resolution. And so increasingly, we are seeing companies having to re-engage with key investors post-AGM to fully understand their reservations. And companies really should take this obligation seriously to ensure that their pool of dissenting shareholders doesn't continue to grow year on year. 
The FRC have also recently flagged that companies do need to do more when applying the corporate governance code principles, as too many simply sort of replicate the wording of the code in their REM reports or policies and don't adequately disclose detailed compliance. So that's another thing for companies to consider going forward when they're drafting their next remuneration reports and policies. On a separate and final note, we're now one year closer to the 31st of December 2022 deadline set by the Investment Association, by which companies must ensure that all of their executive directors are awarded the same pension contributions as the majority of their workforce. So more than 95% of FTSE 100 companies have agreed to cut executives' pensions, with the majority committing to alignment by the end of next year. But there are still a number of FTSE 350 firms who have not aligned or who have suggested they'll only review this as part of their next REM policy review. Companies should be aware that without a credible plan of alignment, where new or incumbent directors' pensions contributions are over 15% of salary, they will receive a red top warning from the Investment Association. Thank you, Katie, and also thank you to Matt, Bella and Kate. This concludes our agenda for today. 2022 looks to be yet another busy year for annual reports and AGMs, with key areas of focus to include climate, diversity and, as ever, executive pay. We would also expect, subject to any public health guidelines, to see AGMs begin to evolve towards a new post-pandemic normal with a wide range of meeting formats in the market. And at the same time, we will all need to be closely monitoring any output from the government's consultation on audit and corporate governance reform and its potential impact, including significantly for reporting wider enforcement powers for the proposed new regulator, Arga. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast. We hope you found the content interesting. Do get in touch with any questions or if we can help with any aspect of your annual report or your AGM preparations. Thank you again. (music) 